Hello, everybody. This is Wes Berdine of the 551 Podcast. Uh, this is obviously a Minnesota United soccer podcast. But uh, if you've been listening the last few weeks, we've been taking uh, some detours to talk to soccer people, but about music, which has always been uh, a big part of my life. Um, you know, uh, over the years, um, I, I've talked to uh, my soccer friends about various things, but music is, has been one of those key things. Bruce McGuire, obviously, um, our first episode of The Front Three, he um, he had a, a great story to tell. Um, Alexi Lalas, you know, well known for his uh, soccer, but also a musician. Uh, this week, we are talking to Ariel Castillo, who um, used to be um, with MLSsoccer.com, and that's how I kind of uh, learned who she was, And um, but also has just been involved in music uh, all her life. And so I thought she'd be great to talk to. And it worked. She was awesome. So I want to um, uh, thank her for for coming on the podcast. But I also want to give a little plug. Um, You'll also probably know that I'm the owner of Black Heart of St. Paul, which is the the best damn queer soccer bar on the planet. Um, We uh, are not open right now. But um, one thing that you can do if you'd like to support us is we are doing a pre-sale at Blackheart stp.com uh, we've got our existing yellow shirts but we've got a uh, new dark uh, gray um, t-shirt design and then uh, in a week or so we'll we'll do another um, pre-sale of our uh, our jerseys which are pretty great so please for the next month you can pre- pre-order these t-shirts and um, it will be awesome thank you so much for your support we hope to see you sometime soon whenever we can reopen and uh, and uh, come back together thanks again My guest today is Ariel Castillo, the the U.S. Um, content manager for a soccer team, uh, Undisclosed. Um, previously, she worked uh, for MLSsoccer.com, as well as um, having written for Rolling Stone and Spin Magazine, um, a bunch of others. Ariel, um, thank you for joining me. Um, how how are you surviving quarantine time in, in New York? Um, well, I have my health, so that's good. <laughs> Uh, I live in, uh, I live on the border of Brooklyn and Queens, so it's been pretty intense here. Um, and we're on, I don't know, like week 10 of, of self-isolation here. Um, but you know, I, I have a home, um, I'm able to, you know, pay, pay my rent and eat. So I'm happy about that. Yeah. And so during the quarantine, you've been doing a lot of um, creating like yoga content and yoga videos. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I know that, yeah. I know that that's something you've kind of, you kind of do super part time on the side. Um, but I imagine that during kind of the batshit times, um, it's pretty helpful to, to be engaging with other people um, in mindfulness and, and uh, active uh, trying to find ways to be active, healthy living. Can you tell me about that during this kind of period? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, when I was working at MLS, actually at the league office, I finished my basic yoga teacher certification, which is a 200 hours of training. Um, and it's funny because, uh, most, most teacher training programs like that traditionally are run as one, one month long, like intensives, I guess for people who don't have chaotic work lives. Um, and I found a program in 2017 that was every other weekend for like five months. I think it's a really long time to finish, but, um, so I would basically like just work 
MLS straight through and then use all those my off days like to go do all that stuff. Um, so that was a little bit crazy. And then um, for the past like two years uh, when I'm not working in soccer, football, depending on <laughs> which era we're talking about or who you're asking, uh, I was teaching at a music driven studio here in New York um, uh, about five hours a week. And it's always been fun because the place that I taught pre uh, pre COVID um, was uh, really playlist focused. So I had a, a really good time like crafting that for the hour in the room. And it was for a lot of people who were coming to yoga for the first time or who thought they weren't interested in it, but they were really interested in like sort of the, the loud um, vibes hmm. that we created. Um, so I missed that a lot. And obviously we're stuck inside. So <laughs> I had a lot more time to create yoga content. So uh, I've just been posting stuff on my Instagram for fun. And I usually go live at 1 p.m. Eastern during the week for about 15 minutes. Um, doing some beginner stuff because teaching beginners is my passion and uh, I really miss making playlists. Yeah. What's a, what's a song that you would, um, that when it would come on while you're doing, while you're teaching that it just would, it would just jam every time. Is there something that you, well, yeah. So it's, so I've taught at three different places here in New York. Um, I taught, uh, I taught a few like community classes at the studio called Laughing Lotus, which is where I taught my training mm -hmm. and, or where I completed my training. And, um, they, uh, you could play kind of anything there. Um, so my favorite teacher, one of my favorite teachers there would play a lot of like new wave and David Bowie and things like that. Um, and then the other studio I taught at was very like, uh, electronic music and hip hop driven. So um, I played a lot of like UK artists there too, especially because um, the like cursing and stuff is different. So, <laughs> so, so it's a little bit easier to like program like, you know, um, around that. But uh, my students always loved like Wiley and Dizzy Rascal and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been doing this, uh, this kind of version of the podcast, uh, that's usually a Minnesota United, uh, soccer podcast and wait. yeah. And now we're doing, <laughs> I thought you said, wait, like you were going to be like, wait, I cannot do oh, no. nothing with United <laughs> in it. Um, so, um, but we've been talking, I've been talking to people about kind of three songs that, that changed their lives just because, um, uh, soccer and music have been the two biggest things in my life, uh, especially over the last decade. Um, and and it's it's been really fun to kind of get to know um, people's people from the soccer communities their um, their kind of history with music. So let me just um, let me ask you first: uh, How did you encounter or interact with music when you were young? Um, I feel like most people around our, our generation, right. I had hippie parents, um, who were really into all that stuff. Um, and my dad was also really into, then it's weird. My parents were like really deeply into psychedelic music of the sixties and maybe the early seventies. And then, um, they kind of skipped the eighties entirely, except my mom was extremely into Graceland, the album. I think that stands out in my mind. as like my, one of my earliest memories is like call me Al and having to do chores to that. Um, so she was extremely into that. And then ladies said black mom Basel on their own. Yeah. Uh, so that, that sticks out. They what? were upset. They are obsessed with Simon and Garfunkel. Let me, let me um, pause you there real quick. Cause I, I have to, so, um, uh, 
Graceland now, and when you hear those songs, is it is it hard for you to encounter that record? Because uh, it's one of my, my favorite records. Uh, but is it hard for you to encounter it as a as good music, or is it is it kind of like there's too many of those? Oh shit, I've got to go do the dishes or something like that. It, I mean, in a way, like I would never just pop it on. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, but yeah. I. <laughs> but it reminds me of my mom sure. and I love my mom. So, but it, it, it will always remind me of like chores yeah. and, but, but also my mother. Right. So yeah. there's good, good memories there, but it would not be, if I was going to, I would listen to earlier Simon and Garfunkel before solo Paul Simon, probably. Sure. sure. Sorry. I'll let you continue. I mean, we, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, my parents really love that. Like we even went to see Paul Simon had this tragic, um, like Broadway show. I don't know if anyone listening to this will remember but it was called the Cape man. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I must have been really young when we went to see it, but we yeah we're completists, so we saw that one too in New York. <laughs> and so, um, so they kind of introduced you to music. Was that um, were any of them any of your family musicians, or was it kind of um, uh, these were the soundtracks that that you kind of inherited? Yeah, no, my parents weren't musicians. They just love music. Um, but my dad, like I said to my parents, I don't know. They just kind of skipped the eighties culturally. And, um, and so, uh, around that time, you know, my father was really into classical music as well and, um, particularly classical pianists and, uh, some older Cuban music as well. Cause he's Cuban. Um, but I was forced to take piano lessons like so many other people. <laughs> so <laughs> while that gave me an appreciation for musical theory and for the amount of discipline that it takes to really excel in an, in an instrument, um, have mixed feelings on forcing your child mm. into music lessons. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a whole other subject that I've, as, as someone who grew up playing music all his life and now I've, I've got uh, five-year-olds that um, I, I think yeah. about that a lot of like, how do I, how do I not push something on, on people and all, and at the same time, uh, you know, I, I, almost everyone you know who has who learned an instrument is grateful that they did it but uh anyway that's we won't have to walk into that no no it's, it's interesting because i remember when they finally let me quit you know like uh, because i hated practicing piano mm -hmm. specifically and when they finally let me quit i remember my mom was like i'm gonna let you quit you know but you're gonna regret this when you're older and i do like yeah. she was absolutely right i wish i had just stuck it out until you know, I don't know, age 18 or something. Yeah. Um, and then, but then finally after I quit piano, I begged for guitar lessons because at that point I thought I was cool. But right. Then they made me start with acoustic guitar, which I had no interest in. So I did that for like a year before I finally got an electric guitar. So. <laughs> and what kind of guitar, what, what kind of electric guitar was it? Do you remember? So, it, yeah, no, I do remember because I was obsessed with the movie Wayne's World. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean... <laughs> You can still recite it, but I was obsessed with it. And, um, I, and so I wanted a Fender. Wait. Yeah. Was it it's a, a was it a Strat or what did he? Yeah. Yeah. He played a Stratocaster, right? Right. The one where it's like no stairway denied. Yes. So yeah. I wanted one of those, but I didn't get the real one. Like what was the, like the crappy one that they make? That's like for when you buy your kid a guitar and you're not sure yeah, like that a, they're going to. Ibanez or something like, like a that. Fake one. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. It was a Fender, but it was like, oh. you know, I don't know. It, I don't remember. Maybe it was like an Epiphone. I don't remember. Yeah. But, um, 
but it was red and that was the important part. <laughs> um, so, uh, where did you then, when you discovered new music and you started really becoming kind of someone who, who found music, where did that come from? Where, where did you find it? So I, I guess in school, um, my friends were kind of like the friends that I wound up gravitating towards, um, were kind of like into alt rock because they were kind of like the early tween weirdos. And part of it is because I was sent to a, I was sent to a small, very small private Montessori school until age 11 or 12. So like way past the age when most kids are in that kind of system. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, so I entered public middle school in Miami, like a year after most people had started middle school. So everyone already had friends. And I had been in this weird unstructured environment. Like everyone had cool sneakers and clothing brands. I didn't even know what any of that was because my parents were so <laughs> like thoroughly uninterested in any of that stuff. And I had been in this cloistered environment where, you know, students were barefoot and just doing whatever the hell they wanted all day. Um, and so, <laughs> so like, you know, the alt kids accepted me, I guess. And I don't even remember what kind of crap people were into at that point like Marilyn Manson or something like that but then um so you know there's a lot of that stuff and but then um I think pivoting towards some of the songs I sent you I think it was my friend Sandra who is now a filmmaker in LA I I want to say that it was her idea to suggest renting Sid and Nancy from Blockbuster Video or something. I feel like I'm extremely dating myself. But I want to say that like somehow I saw the movie Sid and Nancy rented from the Blockbuster Video on Bird Road in Southwest Miami. And um, (laughs) that's how I discovered the Sex Pistols. And then it was just like, I don't like what's happening. And so that was like the the door kind of opening. Yeah, so let, let's go there. Um, so I asked you to put together a, a list of three songs that yeah. change your life. And the first one is, um, you know, it's pretty foundational. It's the Sex Pistols' Anarchy in the UK. It was their um, first single in 76 and came off their, their only record, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. Um, can you first describe what the song sounds like to you? And then I, I want to know about if you remember the first time you heard it, or maybe it's just from Sid and Nancy. Yeah, I mean, this is not like a cool, I don't know. Yeah, it's not a cool story. Um, oh, The song sounds to me, it's so hard because from an adult lens, mm-hmm. right? It just sounds, like facile but when you hear it for the first time <laughs> it's so different um because it's the kinds of things that are musically shocking when you're so young or just like not the same as you grow up um but i you know it was like the opposite of hippie energy it was the opposite of you know like the left bank and the stuff that my parents played in the house um and um i just liked that it was angry even though i had no real reason to be angry yet <laughs> because i didn't know like I didn't know anything. Um, yeah. 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 It's really different. I mean, you have to understand like, you know, where I grew up, uh, I mean, everyone was Latin, including myself, but the, the overarching culture was like dance music. And like, I, I don't know, everyone was like kind of weirdly prematurely sexy at my school. And I felt yeah. very awkward about that. 
And um, this is just like the complete opposite. Yeah, and the energy is like completely different. It's, you know, the opposite of uh, Miami Sound Machine or something. Yeah. 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 And I, yeah, and I just wasn't, and now I have so much love for that stuff. But um, yeah, it was not like some guy with a fruit mold mustache and his, you know, crappy Honda playing like a bass mixtape and sexually harassing you from the window. You know, it's like <laughs> the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah. Was So I wanted to, to take a step back first. Growing up in Miami, was there any part of Miami that that you feel like uh, sh- shaped your uh, your interest in in music? Or yeah, I mean, there was a there was actually so so what happened is is that um, I feel like everyone who kind of gets into this stuff either has the permissive cool parent or mm-hmm. has a friend with an overly permissive cool parent, and so my parents were very strict. But I had a couple of friends who had very overly permissive parents, and so. Um, when I was about, this is around this time, I had one friend who I hung out with all the time and there was an all ages music venue right by where she lived. And um, so we were allowed to go there. So um, there was pretty, at the time, there was like a pretty happening, like weird kind of punk and ska and hardcore scene happening in South Florida. Um and we would just kind of go to everything that we were allowed to go to. So it would be, I don't know. I mean, I remember going to see like, I, I don't even know who's listening to this or if this even rings a bell, but we would go see bands like G- GBH, like the really ancient English punk rock band. Like they played mm-hmm. once and you know, the Southwestern residential part of Miami. I remember going to see like Wes and Jake came down a lot cause they were from Gainesville, Florida. Um, and so there was definitely like a scene and there's like a big kind of warehouse, DIY scene of like just kind of weird Latin punk kids who also did graffiti and skateboarded mm-hmm. so that it was definitely like a thing. So I, I think about myself being born in the eighties and how I, I knew punk far more like um, early on. I, I knew it far more from like random pink Mohawk dudes with chains who would show up in movies and didn't, yeah. hear, I, you know, I didn't hear the sex pistols until much later than, than I'd seen those. So, so, um, you know, I, I I wonder if um, your introduction to punk music was separable from the pop culture version of what punks were or punk punk music. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, because on one hand, like I heard the sexual pistols and I saw this movie, and then you know, going on primitive internet or whatever, and looking up similar bands and buying you know the Clash self titled album that was sort of one like musical interest, but um, there were only some bands happening where I grew up that were like that. There was a strong current of kind of like skate punk, you know, cause the, like, the warp tour was still a punk rock thing at the time. So that was a thing. And there were a ton of ska bands in Florida, like traditional ska quote unquote. Um, so it, on one hand it was this like, thing in movies but it was still kind of a living culture mm-hmm. at least among my friends or the friends I made so what what was um you know you said a little bit about this but what was punk music and maybe what still is is punk music um for you when you when you go to that genre or when you found that genre I mean it's such a wide genre right like I still listen to you know I still listen to a lot of <laughs> bands that I like listen to back then i mean i still listen to the dead kennedys and crafts all the time mm-hmm. um and now it's like no but for real you know there's that tweet that went around that's like 
I, I don't remember, but it's like, no, yes, the dead Kennedys, I'm playing them, but I agree. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so, I mean, I still listen to a lot of that stuff. So yeah, I don't like, I don't keep up with that style of punk mm-hmm. in terms of like going to shows like that, but there's just such a, a wide world anyway of, of subgenres. And mm-hmm. I definitely keep up with a lot of stuff. And it just, it just pops up everywhere, you know, like talking about yoga, right? I mean, half the people that I meet in the yoga community are like ex hardcore people. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, when I did my 200 hour teacher training, my, I don't know how, how into hardcore you are, but, um, or familiar with it. But when I did my 200 hour teacher training, our weekend on sort of yoga philosophy was taught by a guy from the New York city hardcore scene who is, um, now the host of a podcast with a teacher who used to sing for shelter and use of today. So it's just all these yeah. things keep coming up um, and they're always connected. So I, I always think that's cool. How has your relationship with the song changed over the years? Um, well, now <laughs> I still think that album has this like great tune but I have the distance now emotionally as an adult to know that like, they probably didn't mean everything they said. Or yeah. They probably only meant like a shred of it. Um, so when I hear that, especially compared to some of the things that Johnny Rotten says publicly now, yeah. where it's impossible to tell if he really means what he says, is he really like kind of older and reactionary or is he just saying things to get a rise out of people again, just like back then it's hard to say. So I don't, I hear it and I hear a song with a lot of like sonic energy, but I don't take it as, you know, yeah. a political thing to take seriously at all. Musically, does it does it still um, when you put that song on? Is it is it more memory that happens, or uh, what what happens when it's, you put it on? For me, it's for me, it's one of those songs that I like it, but I've heard it so many times over yeah. the course of my life that I don't need to hear it again. Another instance yeah. would be um, like Friday. I'm in love by the Cure is on paper one of my favorite songs of all time. But if I'm out somewhere, I actually get annoyed if I hear it because (laughs) I've heard it so many times out. You know what I mean? So it's like in my heart, I love it, but I don't need to hear it again for a long time. (laughs) So the second song you picked was um, Desmond Decker's 1967 007 Shantytown. First big single um, uh, that that he had. Desmond Decker, I guess for for listeners out there who need a refresher, um, he's kind of the first successful Jamaican star in, in American and English markets, British markets. Um, and uh, and you know he like basically create paved the way for he helped bring get Bob Marley signed and Toots and the Maytals and all these guys who who came people who came through. Um, can you describe Shantytown for me? Yes. So Shantytown has these bright, shimmering guitars and this rhythmic syncopation that just kind of pulls you in. And, you know, you're pulsing along on the beat, on the bass that's like on the on the downbeat, right? Which is so unlike, you know, rock, which is on the one, two, three, four. And so right then that draws you in. And the thing that I really love about this song, besides Desmond Decker's voice, which was just so smooth and fullful and unmatched really. Um, it has that, um, rare quality where the song sounds really 
kind of happy and chill, but the lyrics are very dark. Um, and that happens to be one of my favorite genres of song, particularly because they trick you. Um, and so this song, if you don't know anything about it and you have no cultural experience, I, mean, I have no cultural experience in Jamaica, but so when you first hear it, you think that it's just, just kind of like chill beach vibe song. But when you listen to it, it's actually giving you this kind of um, social reality of unrest. And that's um, really intriguing. Yeah. One Decker always um, in, in my brain and I, someone can criticize me for this, but in my brain, Decker is Sam Cooke and Bob Marley is Otis Redding. Um, you know, um, Decker has this uh, much more kind of prettier, higher voice like Cooke um, uh, and, and kind of sweeter singer. Um, mm. And, uh, and, and maybe like, um, you know, when you've got these kind of uh, heavier moments, um, it kind of almost seems kind of, you don't, it doesn't always register as heavy because it, because it's being sung so sweetly where, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and, and, and also, yeah. And also an important thing that I want to, I want to bring up here because it's relevant is, um, you mentioned he was one of the first people to bring kind of Jamaican music to pop popular culture in America mm-hmm. and, and, um, England. But I have to say that one of the other like biggest pop hits at the time, and I would have to double check the year was my boy lollipop by um by millie small i guess it's a cover but anyway um you know the millie small version was massive and that is just uh and she just recently passed so i wanted to mention that but that was a real pop song so i i almost wonder if like the other songs that came after that that had heavier um lyrical content maybe like almost slipped in under the radar because people weren't paying attention yeah. and they thought that it would just be more of that kind of frothy stuff. Hmm. Um, and so tell me when did you, how did you encounter um, this song and, and, and when? Uh, my mom had the 45 of Israelites, his other big hit. And I don't remember what the B side of that was, um, but that introduced me to him and I want to say, God, there might be like a scene in Sid and Nancy or something where they're like listening to it. Or I must mm. have seen another movie where there was like a rude boy character, quote unquote, who was listening to it. I can't remember. But it started because my mom had the 45 for Israelites, which is like like his massive, massive hit that you still hear in commercials. Yeah. And, and so what did the... It, maybe you ran into it um, really young and then re-encountered it later, but what did, uh, what did the song mean to you when you kind of, when it, when it had its effect on you? I mean, I had no, so this is all happening in this weird kind of like pr- primitive internet time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, just researching is just kind of like researching on AOL or yeah. wherever early internet, just finding out about more artists. And I, and the interesting thing was that um, uh, at the time there was a, I mean, obviously South Florida also has a big Caribbean community. So you could actually go see old these shows with a lot of these people. And some of my friends and I would go when we got a little bit older, like 15. So this was still like a living thing. I mean, I remember going to see uh, like Alton Ellis and Prince Buster um, when I was an older teenager. Um, and so from there, I just kind of started learning more about the links between like English punk rock and 
um, Jamaican music, obviously, because of like the intertwined colonial and political histories of the country. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then that's how I got interested in sort of, um, like British subculture stuff and, um, finding other people where I was from that were into that as well. Cause there was definitely like a small scene. Um, and that's kind of how I got into like, yeah, it's kind of how I got into like the, the later period style of Anglophilia based around subcultures. And then that's kind of how I got into English football, soccer. Yeah. Um, So it's a whole weird thing. It's a whole weird thing because like, so there would be like three stores in Florida. Actually, there's one in Tampa where someone would make a pilgrimage once a month and bring stuff back. Right. And the stores would have, I mean, it's just so, (laughs) I sound ancient, but it wasn't that long ago. But, um, so there would be stores that would sell like punk records, ska records, and then like English brands of clothing, right? Yeah. So you'd go to the store and you could buy all these records and seven inches or whatever. And they'd have like, maybe they'd have shows there too for all ages. And then you could also buy like a Ben Sherman shirt or like boots along one wall kind of thing when like alt stores still existed. They don't anymore. Right. You'd um, go get your Doc Martens and, and like the people who you wore Doc Martens as a kind of signal for uh, genre and like personality and other things. And Yeah, yeah, for sure. And they'd have all this stuff at like the store, right? Yeah. And so a lot of the ones that would carry, you know, like, um, like Fred Perry stuff, which you couldn't really get as easily back then would then have a wall of like English soccer jerseys and scarves and things like that. So like, I remember, it's just so it's hilarious. It's literally hilarious. If you think about it, imagine a bunch of Latin kids in Miami running around with like a Newcastle United scarf, which doesn't make sense culturally weather wise or anything, but we just like, you know, thought that was really cool because it was the complete opposite of my lived experience. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I, you know, I, I found it really funny, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll pause it. Um, here and I don't want to talk about your third song yet, but the, one of my um, eventual conclusions, looking at this list of three, um, was you know the, obviously there's these kind of um, focus Anglophilia that go, that goes throughout it, sure. and you know for for me Anglophilia in music was was a way to access something that seemed really exotic and cool. Uh, you know I, I didn't yeah. I didn't do drugs, but the like heroin noise rock of spiritualized like was so mm-hmm. mesmerizing to me and so one of my favorite bands life changing yeah. and and that and you know every like when i was in late high school it was like third eye blind limp biscuit and all this other shit from the right. late 90s and it was just like these guys who you know blur and all these things just like seemed so cool to me and there was you know i think you described it of like this just this small group like i I had a couple friends who, you know, he he would be like, yeah, but have you heard Teenage Fan Club? Or have you heard, the, you know, and we would trade these things because we it was only cool to us. And like everyone else was like, why do you like Oasis so much? I'm like, screw you, buddy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think I honestly think my friend Sandra and I would literally sit there and like, you know, search on Yahoo, like names of punk band and like look up more. You know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah. we were like 12 or 13. Um and, uh, yeah, I mean, how, like how different for an experience could you like get than being in this humid swamp, yeah. um, and thinking, you know, thinking that the North, the North of England was like this exotic place, <laughs> you know, I'm sure they would laugh hearing about it, Yeah, but, um, yes. you know, that, no. it's definitely 
definitely a thing. New, Newcastle has never been cooler than to uh, a bunch of uh, teenagers in the 90s. So I don't Yeah, I just remember my friend had this like Newcastle United scarf or something. Yeah. And I don't even know. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't even know. I'm sure that it was just on a wall um, because you couldn't, you know, those are the days when the league was on Satanta or something. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. So, you know, um, so getting back a little bit to, to kind of uh, Jamaican and Caribbean music and, and England, um, you now work in England. So, um, you, I mean, partially your, your job takes you to England a lot. And, um, you know, I, I remember the first time I was wandering around Notting Hill and the neighborhoods in that kind of area of London knew nothing about it um, and found suddenly like wandered into what I then discovered was like, a huge part of the um, Jamaican and Caribbean population in London. And there's all these niche uh, record stores that, that have, you know, mm-hmm. it's basically, and I, I'm, I'm curious if you then have like uh, gone out of your way to, to kind of find these. Cause it, for me, it still is, uh, you know, I did it this one day happened to find all these places and, um, then someone explained to me what I had, what I had discovered. And I'm wondering if you have kind of gone and, and found lots of those and maybe you've already gone down that path uh, many times, but. Yeah. I mean, so I'm usually in um, Manchester. Um, so it's a little bit different, but um, when uh, it's so hard because it's like uh, all of the niche record stores i don't know they're kind of closing in general yeah. there used to be a really awesome store here in new york um when i was in college uh that was all jamaican music and that was a sick place to go because they had um they had rehearsal studios in the basement too mm. so you could just pop in and there'd be bands that like rehearsing down there and you'd always run into people from bands like the flackers stuff like that so that wouldn't any bells for anyone and um uh, so by the time that I was old enough, well, every time I'm in England, I go record shopping for sure. Um, but the first time that I was allowed in England unsupervised, um, I convinced my parents to let me go to some, I don't know, some summer program when I was 16. And, and I was heavily into drum and bass at that point. Cause I had kind of followed the through line of music from sort of Jamaican music into the dance music that eventually became drum and bass. And um, I definitely remember going to sh- shops like uh, black market records was a thing in London at the time. Um, I don't remember. It's been a minute. It's been a minute, but for sure. So uh, let's, let's um, then just, uh, I'll, I'll follow your lead here. And uh, the third song you picked was um, Goldie's inner city music. Um, inner city life. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Um, uh, and, and so 1995 single off the debut record, Timeless, um, uh, you know, in, in many senses, uh, this, this is, you, you've definitely made a little three song thread here. So I, w- I wonder if you can describe this song to me. Yeah, so I, okay, so this song obviously came out before my time, like, um, 1995, I was, like, too young to have been, like, around buying music um, when this would have come out. So the original version, the thing that really struck me when I heard the original version of this song is that it is completely unpredictable. Like, if you have not heard 
his music before. It's just, you don't, it's, it's like, what is this? There's this arresting female vocal. You don't know where the beats are going to go at all. There, it's just completely like there are these gaps that are spare and then it becomes very frenetic in a way that it doesn't follow usual patterns. Um, and so if I, if I kind of backtrack a little bit, so being in Florida, right, there was a punk rock scene, there was a ska scene, but at the same time on the ascendant for a sort of youth culture, if you weren't into, I don't know, in sync or whatever, uh, or like terrible new metal, um, the ascendant culture was that Florida had a massive rave scene around the turn of the millennium, let's say. And um, there was a group called, I think, I think they're the ones who, um, sorry, I'm like literally Googling it. Yeah. So there's a group <laughs> in Florida called rabbit in the moon. And okay. I would never, I would never listen to their music now because it made me feel like, but anyway, when, <laughs> when you were like a corny teenager wearing neon, they were just, they were it in Florida. Okay. They were like the Florida rave Kings and they had a remix of this song. Mm. And, um, and that would have been in the, like the 2000s, I want to say that this is still bumping on the all ages Florida rave circuit, a classy place. And so I, um, and so I guess from there I went back and heard the original and I was like, the original is so much less cheesy. This is so much better. Um, and Goldie was still, he was like in music magazines at the time because, you know, in the heyday of print music magazines, not only was there spin and rolling stone, but they were very specific with dance music oriented magazines, like, accelerator and herb and I don't remember, but I, you know, he would still be on the cover of magazines. Um, and you just like, he has these gold teeth and he's just cuts like a very, um, memorable figure. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that song is just arresting. I love that song. Yeah. And it, it's kind of the, the, one of the classic drum and bass songs. Um, the, yeah, it's like uh, Brown paper bag by Ronnie size or something. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I wonder, is this, is that um, a, a genre that, that sticks, still sticks with you that, that you listen to a lot or, or is that song specifically, I guess? I love that song. Yeah. Drum and, drum and bass is like my life very seriously for like a few years. Like I yeah. interned at a label and I, it's a whole thing. Um, I had a college radio show that only played drum and bass. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, I collected, I wasted a lot of money on vinyl records. I don't like, I just, um, I don't, uh, then it died, right? And then people kind of got into dubstep and then what that eventually became in the United States was of zero interest to me. Um, but I definitely still listen to this one. And um, when there are new artists that produce drum and bass in like an intelligent and not knuckle dragging way, I'll, I'll definitely take a listen. Yeah. So. Yeah, one 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 thing that stands out from your your list is that um, each of the songs is it's not just like the the standard bearer for a genre, but um, kind of really defined. They weren't obviously they weren't new genres, but they were kind of the first introductions to broader popular culture. But um, yeah, I would never pretend I was cool enough to hear some hipster song first. Like definitely like the most obvious ones. Yeah, and I guess I'm curious, what about these songs as kind of being iconic for their genres and for the bands, for musicians, that then also kind of made it so impactful and uh, iconic for you? Well, an interesting thing with that, um, I could go on and on and on about this for a long time, but I don't want to put everyone, anyone to sleep who might be listening. 
But one thing that really drew me in about drum and bass was that um, there are clear musical structural similarities that came directly from Jamaican music. Mm-hmm. So um, if you kind of charted out a genre map from um, there would be like sort of a, a splinter where it's like reggae disco house. And then it goes into sort of like hardcore and then jungle and then drum and bass. But um, <laughs> I, I'm getting off track here. Sorry. But for a long time, there's a very healthy subgenre called Raga Jungle, where it was like reggae over kind of set up electronic beats that you could tell were clearly reggae derived. Um, and that kind of went into drum and bass eventually. Um, so those were, I was really interested in the clear through line of that um, musically. And so it made sense to sort of like follow and get into that because it was actually like new and living. Um, and there was a really healthy scene for it in Florida and New York and, and obviously in England where it originated. So, um, you know, obviously you, you, um, are are creating kind of a narrative here from it and I'm, and not all of your tastes, I'm sure fall into that kind of clear evolution. Um, or maybe, maybe I'm totally wrong, but, um, what is the, what's the, what's the kind of music or maybe artists or something that is, uh, furthest outside this narrative that you love? Uh, I really like that Graham Parsons, Emmy Lou Harris record. Like that has yeah. nothing to do with any of this. Sure. Okay. I think that's probably the furthest culturally. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, you, you said yeah. you're, you're kind of a record store person and I'm, I'm curious, how do you find music now? Oh yeah, I know. It's just a shame because I, I was a record store person. And I mean, there are record stores here now, but it's yeah. not like they're, they're not discovery engines. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it is pretty like sad to say that I do a lot of it through streaming services and band band especially actually, I think it's really good for finding like really new artists because if you go on Spotify, it's so algorithmically driven that yeah. you end up in a hole of like same, same, same. No matter what you do in um, Spotify, it will lead you to fruit bats. Yeah. I've, I've never like, purposely listened to that band, but they come up on anything. Know, and the worst thing, the worst thing ever, you know how it algorithmically on your discover will like try to give you music from people that you listen to. Okay. So I don't remember which MLS all-star game it was. I think it was the one in Chicago in 20, I don't know what year was that? 2017. Okay. The band, because everyone who's listening is an MLS nerd, so you know there are always these concerts, and the concerts are never yeah. quite top tier. They're like B level, yep. and so the band, <laughs> the band that was playing was X Ambassadors, which are just like one of those you know like cola commercial bands where you're like, oh yeah, that song kind of thing. And I think because we were working on some kind of prod, you know, content or whatever around them, I literally played their music on my Spotify, maybe five times total yeah. and now I cannot escape X ambassador. <laughs> like every time they come out with something, they're on my discovery. And I'm like, I don't want to listen to that. I didn't like it back then. I didn't even listen to it that much back then. No, so the can't. algorithm there, it's like, you really have to like really try hard to bust out of algorithm jail. Yeah. Um, yeah. Band camp is so, free from uh, that. Yeah. Band camp is yeah. good. And they like are better with their artists and everything like that. Um, and, uh, I go on recommendations from friends a lot and I'm in a lot of different like chat groups and things like that. So, yeah. um, yeah. Was there, um, yeah, you do, 
I do definitely go on Spotify and I hit, I, I try to get out of my algorithm, but I'll definitely, um, especially because when I was teaching yoga in person, I really did have a certain clientele that I had to think about, um, depending on where I was teaching. So that actually forced me to sort of research more and see kind of like what I thought that clientele might like. So that got me out of my patterns a little bit. Um, you, you, you know, um, when you were kind of uh, earlier in your career, um, were doing both. Uh, you were doing music writing, and then kind of soccer. Um, was there a, a point where you chose, you distinctively chose soccer over music as a, a career? And I'm, I'm curious what what kind of led you down the path that that you did. Yeah, the bri- so the bridge moment was the 2014 World Cup because I got hired at a cable network that no longer exists called Fusion, which mm-hmm. some people might yeah. Remember because they had a program called Soccer Gods, but um, you know, I, obviously, like I watched the sport and everything, but that place was so dysfunctional and so disorganized that um, I was hired in before that to do like culture writing and entertainment reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, because everything was so crazy and just a mess, they decided to send people to down to down to Brazil to do a daily live show, and um, uh. <laughs> because it was a daily live show and no one was prepared, they were basically like, okay, everyone who wants to like work on this project now works on it. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like literally, like, so my friend, my friend Zach was like the producer of the show. And he was like, do you want to just have a segment on this show? So that was sort of my bridge because it was just complete chaos. And, um, and you know, at that point, um, I, I was just got really, um, the things that attracted me to like reporting on like, live music and stuff are a lot of the same things that attracted me to watching the sport in terms of like a communal experience and like these big soap operas that you watch that just like cross continents and their sagas to follow. And it was just so, um, so interesting. And, uh, so that was sort of the bridge moment really. Mm. And uh, also, you know, like music writing as an industry, I'm sorry to say is dead to yeah. dying you know, there are five elite people that can maybe do that. But at a certain point, you know, you have to decide if it's beca- it's going to be a vocation or an avocation. Yeah. So. Soccer media, however, is, is just blowing up. <laughs> 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 but you found a place I mean, within it. You And you've, you've kind of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, media in general is like yeah. just tragic. Right. That includes television, right? But um, I just, yeah, I just really was so passionate about just like the excitement on the field and really it's like the same people in the stands. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if you go to, <laughs> if you go to an MLS game, there's always like one guy with a flat brim hat and, you know, leg tattoos. It's like the same, same people that I've been hanging out with since I was 13. So <laughs> same amount of graphic designers in, in, in uh, both scenes. Um, so yeah, my joke is that you know, when you go to the supporters end, an MLS game, it's like they check for your leg tattoos. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's, a, it's the same people. So, <laughs> So, um, I, I want to, um, finish up on two questions that I've been asking everyone. Um, I want to know the worst band of all time. And, uh, this is a question defined by, um, the, um, breadth of terribleness can't be, you know, there's some bands out there where they put out one song and it was absolutely terrible. I want to know your worst band of all time by, by the, um, strength of their shitty catalog. But is it like quality? Like, okay, so am I judging by what I really detest or is it like I 
if I logically remove myself, can mm-hmm. I admit that there are moments of quality? Like, which one is it? Um, I'll, I'll let you, I, I would say, um, go, go with the subjective, uh, go, go with your own personal beef. Okay. Well, I have two. Um, I really, really hate Limp Biscuit, and, and it's, it's sad to me to see like, like Generation Z people looking back on the new metal years like with rose-colored glasses, I guess this happens to everyone. They don't do that, do um, they really? Is that a thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, I mean, there's a little bit of like people being like, LOL, new metal was cool. And it's like, actually, no, it wasn't. It was the music of like, you know, I I, I don't want to get into it more, but you know, there was a very bad cultural moment there that was very just like um, aggressive and willfully ignorant and, you know, um, and like the music wasn't good and you go back and it's just like, why is there a guy like rap? I, I don't know. Why so does I every really band suddenly like, have a DJ, uh, rock band with a I mean, DJ? Not like, even, yeah. yeah. But it's just like, I also too think that they just, you know, they like one time Fred Durst came out in an interview or a photo wearing a Smith shirt. And like, bro, you would have beat up people that like the Smiths. Don't even front. There was just, you know, it was just a bad cultural moment, right? Like it's just, and I, I wouldn't listen to the music again. I'd probably like laugh if I heard it now, but you know, I don't know if they're the worst band, a band that I would never go see. Like I would, I would go see almost any band, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I'm trying to think I would go see probably almost anyone. If you invited me, I didn't have to pay, including Limp Bizkit, but I would never go see Dave Matthews band. And I know that that's going to like really hurt the feelings of people that are really into Dave quote unquote. And I don't think they're the worst musically, but I just, again, it's like there's an entire cultural culture around it that I just can't, I just, I can't mesh with it. I yeah. I feel bad because, you know, I, I spend my, you know, I'm trying to be on this like higher path where I wake up in the morning and I listen to Raghunath Kapo from Shelter and Youth of Today talk about like yoga philosophy and how I should stop seeing myself as separate from other people. <laughs> and so I don't want to end the day talking smack about Dave Matthews fan fans because everyone's on their own journey in life. But, um, you know, some journeys would... are shittier than others, though. You can, we can, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, um, oh man, like, it's so hard because I work, so I work as a music journalist based in South Florida and I went to like, because I worked at a newspaper and Alt Weekly, um, it was like my job to review concerts when people still gave a crap about that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, I've just been to so many bad shows that it, it's really impossible to, um, remember, I mean, there were a lot of bad warp tour era bands like at, like later that were just sh- shocking, like around 2012 when you're like, how did anyone market this? It's embarrassing. But, um, yeah. Dave Matthews is a, you know, um, uh, they, they've been around for figure. such a long time. So it's, it's really depending on if you think if, if we want to acknowledge certain parts of that being a good era, um, uh, I, I actually went to a Dave Matthews uh, concert when I was in high school. Um, I, I remember being dragged to one. I was never, um, I, I at, at various points I could appreciate an album or two or maybe half an album. Um, but uh, oh, did you really, or was that social pressure? Um, I thought they were good. I I thought they were very talented musicians, and um, that uh, they wrote really schlocky songs, and that Dave's voice was uh, excessively annoying. 
Um, so but, like, so, yeah. so my thing is that, okay, now, now I'm older and I don't really think this of myself, but I just remember that as like, Oh, I was like, that's the music of like frat boys yeah. who want you to think they're sensitive before they like try to touch you. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and I was just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. That's what my knee jerk reaction and um, at that point, I was like, oh, no, I'm, like, too cool. And I go to, like, you know, raves and warehouses in, in you know, Dumbo, Brooklyn. I don't want anything to do with this. Um, and it- <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of Frisbee that I associate with uh, with Dave Matthews. Band, so, yeah, yeah, and just, like, I don't just, uh I don't know. Here, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you close on on something more positive uh, and and uh, affirming, which is uh, one song that you kind of keep coming back to um, as something that that's comfortable and um, and kind of gives you joy every time. Um, let me think. Uh, what do I get by the Buzzcocks? One of the best bands to ever come out of Manchester. Definitely. That's one song that I've actually heard so many times and has been used in commercials and stuff. Yeah. And I don't know why I don't have the same like exhaustion reaction to it. Um, that I do to others like that. But, um, but yeah. Yeah. If it can survive, it can, if it can survive, uh, uh, deodorant commercials or whatever it's used in. Uh, it was like a Toyota RAV4 oh. or something one year. Yeah. <laughs> Damn Toyota commercials. Um, but, I, but it obviously made an impression that I just said the brand name, which I like hate yeah, myself for. Yeah. But <laughs> what, what about the song is is like uh, makes you bring it back on? I listen to the Bus Talks all the time, so because first of all, Pete Shelley, rest in peace. His voice was just so um, uh, unique, mm-hmm. and all of their songs. You know, they were kind of a punk band, but they were this perfect pop band because the songs are never too long. Like their songs are maybe two. It's like it's very similar to the Ramones, where if a song needs to be two and two minutes long, two minutes twenty seconds long, and that's all it takes to get the idea across and the hook, that's it. Yeah. Um, and they're just relentless with the energy, and um, just just pure hooks, start to finish. I mean, the singles going steady collection of the Buzzcocks is just like an amazing work of like just pop songwriting mm. from start to finish. Um. Well, it has been uh, such a blast talking about music, Ariel. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, it's it's like uh, I've I've uh, seen you over the years tweeting about music, and I know you'd written about it, and and um, and it's just kind of a uh, great to get your kind of uh, you know life path through through um, through you know loving music. And so, thank you so much for giving me your time. Oh, it's so fun, and it's such a good podcast idea. So yeah. Yeah. Well, well, take care. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do. You can do some like extra meditation to get the uh, the darkness that I I brought you by uh, having to talk about Dave Matthews Band and Limp Biscuit. Both of them. It's just such a dark cultural time, <laughs> really, at their peak. God. Anyway, all right. Thanks, all right. Wes. Yeah, take care. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Bye.